Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. We are at episode 102, and my guest today is David Delmarciente, is founder of Resilient Coders. Some people wish for change, while others take action. David is in the take action category. He calls himself a workforce equity activist, which means he is passionate about economic opportunity and economic equity. Resilient Coders is a coding bootcamp that trains people of color for careers as software engineers and connects them with jobs. One might think he has a passion for coding, but that is not the case. Coding is actually the megaphone as it provides the window of opportunity for his students to pursue a high-growth career building software. Students participate in a 14-week program, which teaches them coding skills in various languages like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and more. Lots of companies are employing graduates of Resilient Coders like Wayfair, Wistia, Arsenal, Studio, Digitas, and many others. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like David's background and how he got involved in the tech industry, what it means to be a workforce equity activist, what led David down the path of starting his own coding boot camp, all about resilient coders, including its mission to use coding to make social change, advice on implementing diversity and inclusion in the workplace, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. If you have been enjoying the VentureViz podcast, then please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. The more reviews we have, the more that people will discover these amazing stories about entrepreneurs across the Boston and New York entrepreneurial ecosystems. Thanks in advance. I appreciate all of your support. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with David. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. David, I'm excited to talk to you. I've heard so much about you uh, through multiple channels. Obviously, there's different people, uh, you know, in, in the world, and there's people that uh, would like to make change, and then there's people that actually take the steps to make change. And you, you're obviously in that category. And you actually describe yourself on LinkedIn and Twitter and on your social channels as a workforce equity activist. W- what does that mean? You know, we like to say that coding is not the message. Coding is the megaphone. Um, I get asked a lot why I'm so passionate about coding and why I'm so passionate about technology. And the fact of the matter is that I'm, I'm really not. I don't really care. <laughs> what I'm passionate about is economic opportunity and economic equity. Now, it just so happens to be that in this town, the superpower that makes people impossible to ignore is an ability to write software uh, for our growing software economy. Uh, now, if uh, so our managing director of engineering, Leon, likes to make the joke that if the day after tomorrow, the new industry that takes over Boston is underwater basket weaving, guess what? <laughs> We're going to be like... harbor. We're going to buy some basket weaving material, and uh, we will be resilient basket weavers. <laughs> and there'll be a boot camp on how to make the best baskets known to man. 100%. All we care about is getting people into jobs that are going to survive the next five years. That is amazing. Very good. Uh, well, let's rewind the clock a bit. Uh, so where did you grow up? Um, you know, what did your parents do for work and what were you like as a kid? Yeah, my, uh, I grew up in Syracuse, New York. Uh, my parents immigrated there from Mexico City. Um, they, they followed a job. Uh, my father is uh, he's an academic. Uh, he's a scientist. And so he, he uh, was able to uh, study in uh, Syracuse in the SUNY system. Um, so, uh, you know, they, they came up, they kind of, they made it work. Uh, my mother is particularly an incredibly, uh, uh, tough and resilient individual. Um, so we grew up, uh, uh, our little, um, small Spanish speaking enclave <laughs> in, uh, in Syracuse, New York. 
And, and what were you like as a kid? Uh, I guess I was, uh, I was very, um, I was a very curious kid. Um, I think that, uh, something that was interesting about my childhood that keeps resurfacing, uh, during resilient coders, I would say is that, uh, I came home one day from school, uh, and I told my parents, you know, I'm, I'm taking history class and I learned about the, the Mexican American war and my two Mexican parents were like, well, what's that? And I was like, well, what do you mean? It's the, you know, the, the poor Texans, they wanted their freedom from the oppressive Mexicans and the, there was a war fought for the liberation and blah, blah, blah. And my parents were like, oh, you mean the American invasion? Mm, got so it. They started giving me all these like historical stories and books and bringing me around. So we'd go, we'd go to, we spent a lot of time in Mexico, the, the four of us, my parents and my sister and myself. Uh, and it was really, really, really important to them that I that Latino culture and specifically Mexico City culture continue to be a big part of who my sister and I are. Um, and that social justice, the understanding of who we are as Mexicans, as Latinos, as immigrants in this country, what is our place in the broader arc of history? Um, and since then, I became obsessed with history, uh, specifically the history that we don't learn in school that runs counter to the narratives and the myths that we have, that we have been uh, fed, uh, because it really influences not just who I am over the course of the, the sort of narrative arc of history, but who we all are, how it is that we came to be where we are, who we are today. And it sounds like the upbringing you had was, um, you know, obviously, you know, one that, um, you know, taught you resiliency, right? So I, I listened to another podcast that you were on and, uh, I, I just, you know, love this uh, statement you made where, you know, a, a kick in the ass, you're falling forward, not backwards, but the, like, that was something that just resonated with me. Yeah, that was, I told you, my mother is one of the most resilient people I've ever met. That was her. <laughs> she, she said that to me during a particularly tough moment. The good thing about getting kicked in the butt is that when you fall, you fall forward. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. Yeah. No, no. So, what what brought you to um, to Boston to study at Boston University? Uh, yeah. So I uh, I wanted to study art. Plan A was to be a comic book illustrator. <laughs> mm. Comic book guy. Okay. So I, I went to BU College of Fine Arts. I uh, got a degree in design, um, and then discovered that I was not going to you know, pay the bills. Uh, I was going to ask, do people actually make a living? Like there's obviously the people that, you know, the, the, whatever percent make it big time, probably earn a great living doing it. But then there's all these other people that are the starving ar artist types. Yeah, man, I'm telling you, I feel like we need to spend, we need to invest more time in our culture in K-12 of sitting down with people and being like, listen, kid, I understand that you want to be an astronaut. Here's how many there are. Here's what it pays. Here's what your likelihood is of, of getting there. Um, but anyway, that's, that's another conversation all the Right. That's a whole different podcast. <laughs> I went to art school. Art remains a big part of who I am. Um, and, uh, I still make art. Um, but, uh, so I, I got out of school and, uh, was like, all right, cool. I now need to pay the bills. I ran around, took my little design portfolio everywhere I went. And everyone was like, all right, cool. So you can design some stuff. Uh, can you, can you build it? Can you actually code this out? And I was like, uh, no, it's, it says art school right there on the, on the resume. You might've missed it. Um, and look, finally, one time I was just, I was broke and desperate and I exaggerated my, uh, uh, my abilities coding. I kind of was, you know, they were like, all right, cool. Can you like actually build this stuff out? And I was sort of like, um, yes, yep, totally. 
I can make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a smart guy. <laughs> yeah. And they, they took a huge chance on me. Um, and it, and it has, I like to think that it has worked out. Um, but that's, that's really what it took. Someone had to just give me a big fat chance. And then what were some of those, you know, initial jobs coming straight out of undergrad? Uh, yeah. So the, the first job that I had designing was for a, uh, uh, the, so I don't know if anyone remembers, uh, the Phoenix, the Boston Phoenix, the fantastic newspaper. Yeah. I remember it well. And I was, uh, you know, a big fan of one of their radio stations, WFNX, you know, back when, uh, I used to listen to that all the time. Yeah, it was, uh, the Phoenix wasn't, was an awesome gig. They used to own a, like a a dating company. It was like a, like a back of newspaper, (laughs) personal ads kind of thing, plus an online presence. They were just jumping into the online dating world. Um, and so I was brought in to do, uh, some of that online uh, dating stuff. So I did that for a bit. I really, honestly, I kind of learned, um, the fundamentals of web development on the job there. Um, and then, uh, eventually found myself working for, the, the holding group, the Phoenix Media Communications Group, which then uh, put me in touch with, you know, folks at FNX, um, the Phoenix, uh, you know, Boston, Providence, Portland, um, and El Planeta, um, which is uh, a Spanish, is still, still around, still a great um, Spanish language newspaper in Boston. And then you eventually hooked up with the team over at where.com. How'd you get connected with them? Oh, my, the, the very first person who hired me, that same woman who took a huge chance on me at the Phoenix, um, then went over to, um, uh, to where, uh, and so she hired me into where, um, and where then became PayPal. Yeah. And we had, uh, David Chang on our podcast recently and the whole team at where was phenomenal. And it's, I think, uh, amazing how they continue to support each other through, you know, funding each other's other efforts and businesses. So it was just a really special group of people that, um, you know, obviously had a great exit to PayPal, but so what, what did you work on while you were there? And, and, you know, you also had a major stake in an incubator that PayPal had in Boston at one point. Yeah. I consider myself incredibly lucky to have been a part of the wear team. It's, I feel like it's like the, <laughs> it's kind of been like the Wu-Tang clan of the startup world where, you know, it, it breaks up and, and everyone goes off to do awesome. They have awesome solo careers. Um, Josh Summers, uh, was a, you know, a huge sort of mentor of mine over there. David Chang as well. Uh, Sarah Hodkinson, the woman that I mentioned earlier who hired me into, into, uh, where, uh, David Chang is, um, he launched this, uh, start tank incubator, um, while I was at PayPal and, uh, I was fortunate enough to be a part of launching that off the ground. And by the way, that was also a huge story of people taking a big chance on me. Um, I always tell Josh, so Josh Summers, I always tell him the story about how during our interview, he asked me, well, is there anything that you are concerned about? And I, I was overtaken by some, uh, spasm of (laughs) truth. (laughs) And I told him, well, I have no experience with mobile and I don't even own a smartphone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and he said, that's fine. You can learn that stuff. Uh, so baked into my own story is, uh, the, the continued uh, pattern of people taking a chance on me because they thought I had the potential, the ambition, and the, the aptitude to learn. And so that's really, that all comes to bear with resilient coders. It's all about finding the Josh Summers of the world, the Sarah Hodkinsons of the world, uh, who can sit down across the table from somebody and say, look, you, you know, you don't have the GitHub account that we're looking for. Um, but at the end of the day, for X, Y, Z, other reason, we think that you might be good at learning. You might be passionate about this space and who knows, let's give you a shot. You can be a real player in the space. 
And and Start Tank was a successful incubator. I mean, like Wanderoo and lots of other companies went through that program and uh, it was a meaningful part of, of Boston for a stretch. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's all David Chang. David Chang just has this incredible network. He knows everyone and he's such a good guy that everyone who meets David Chang loves mm-hmm. David Chang. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that that, that organization was, um, and by that organization, I mean, Star Tank was uh, just very much uh, like an offshoot of David himself, I think. And then what led you to the point where you're like, you know what, I, I have this idea where I can start this, you know, coding boot camp that is going to ultimately, you know, drive towards the change that you're, that you're making. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, one of the interesting things uh, about my own personal story is that I am, I'm both Latino and white. Uh, and so I, I find myself kind of uh, swimming in both waters with equal fluency. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, now what that means in terms of the story is that I, um, I, when I was at PayPal, I got a chance to go to a bunch of different festivals around town and, and see what the best and the brightest were up to. Um, at some point I was down South by, uh, 2013. And, um, I look, I had this opportunity to see all these brilliant people doing all these brilliant things. Um, and, uh, they had absolutely no bearing on our actual civilization, right? They were not addressing the actual problems that we have as a society. They were in complete, they were just completely independent from, from what civilization means. Now, uh, this is where it comes to bear that I, I grew up in a Spanish speaking household. I'm looking around and I'm kind of like, you know, where's mi gente? Where, where are the people that I can visually identify as people of color or who are speaking the language that I grew up with most beautiful language in the world. This was in Texas, Texas. <laughs> And I heard nobody speaking Spanish. And I counted 14 people of color that I could identify visually as people of color as, while I was walking through the throngs of tens of thousands that you see at South by. And I came back feeling not energized, but dejected. I came back feeling like, what the hell have we done here? Look, I believe in technology as serving the purpose of advancing the standard of living for everybody. Right? Technology is meant to be something that improves the quality of life of our entire society as a whole, right? And where are we? Are we, are we addressing that? I was having an existential crisis on behalf of technology writ large, right? What is our point on this planet right now? The way I see it, the way I see it, we have two crisis level issues to take care of immediately, climate change and inequality, right? And look, I don't, I have no, I have no way of taking care of climate change. That's not my problem. Right? Right. Mm-hmm. I don't have the assets uh, needed uh, to be useful in that world. But you know what I can do is I can teach. So I came back from South by and I started thinking, what can I do myself? Uh, and so I started taking some vacation days from PayPal and I go down to a, like a youth detention facility and I started teaching some HTML and CSS uh, just on my vacation days. And it really took off. And I had this moment when I was in one in uh, this uh, facility where I was working with these boys and I'm thinking, you're who I want to hire, right? These kids were smart problem solvers. They were finding a way around different solutions. Uh, they were, uh, they were aggressive. They, they, they wanted to figure it out. 
right? And the distance between them, where they are, where they were on that particular day, and them as viable contributors to my team at PayPal was like a couple months of instruction and some coffee, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So I'm thinking, I don't, I don't know what else I can do here, but I can at least start by teaching. And so that was sort of the, the very beginnings of uh, Resilient Coders. And was the name pretty obvious for you? Uh, no, the, the name was funny because they, uh, the, the director of education for this particular facility asked me what we should call the class that I was teaching at this facility. Uh, and I said, well, I don't, why don't we just call it like coding class or coding 101? And she said, David, literally no one will attend a class <laughs> called the coding 101. Coding 101. <laughs> yeah. She was like, you got to call it something that people can, uh, that these boys can identify with and will get them excited about doing it. And so it was, I, honestly, it was a split second decision. Like, I, I feel like I spent a lot of time. I, I feel like I spend more time thinking about what to eat for lunch than I, <laughs> than I spent thinking about the name Resilient Coders. It was kind of from the gut on the phone with this person. And I just kept it as we grew out of that one volunteering opportunity to an actual organization. And you're an artist. So did you create the, the logo? Not only am I an artist, I'm a Mexican artist. And so I absolutely created that very Mexican <laughs> logo. Yeah, it's awesome. I love it. And I love how you, uh, your, for your, your, your um, cover photo for, for Twitter has uh, the logo on uh, uh, Sid Vicious and the Clash representing. Yes, I recognize them. <laughs> I've never had anybody recognize them. Really? Wow. Those are iconic photos. I was like, oh, Thank that's you. cool. I yeah. think so too. Yeah, I'm a big fan of, uh, you know, classic punk rock. Um, and so I had to put them on there. So, so what can, well, I guess, what's the process for resilient coders? Like how does a student apply? Um, you know, how do they get accepted to, to this bootcamp? Uh, yeah, that's a good question because we're a little bit unusual in that regard. We, uh, vehemently do not believe in assessment. Uh, we also do not believe in using traditional markers of success, including college completion. Uh, so we don't look for the BA, uh, and we absolutely do not test because testing continues to skew white and male, and we will have none of that. Um, and so what we do is that we have an all-day event. We have a hackathon. Anyone can come to the hackathon. You don't even need any background in coding whatsoever. You don't even need a laptop, right? We can provide that. And so folks come by. We spend the morning talking about community issues. Uh, this kind of goes back to my South by Southwest experience. I ask them, if you had these technical superpowers, what are the problems that you would choose to solve? And the stuff that people come up with, I got to tell you, it's not let's come up with another, you know, uh, stalking app that is the, you know, can connect left-handed albino pet owners who were born on a Tuesday. Let's not do any more niche social media applications, right? What would you fix? People come up with, you know, uh, look, I live in a place where I can't get access to affordable nutrition. Um, I need affordable childcare. Um, the incarceration epidemic comes up a lot. Um, destigmatizing mental health, particularly, particularly in communities of color. Uh, that one comes up a lot. Financial literacy comes up every single time. Uh, and so those are the prompts that we use to take us through the hackathon. We split up into teams. Um, everyone gets a crash course in HTML, CSS, enough to circle up within their teams and start building the interfaces for the ideas that they have. Now, during this time, we're also pulling people aside for one-on-ones. Uh, we want to get a sense for who people are and why they're there. 
Um, and so we basically make our decisions as to who we accept into the program based on um, is, are you gravitating towards the material and is the material making sense to you? Like, in other words, do you like coding and does coding like you? Mm -hmm. right. um, a big, big, big one for us is how are you in a team, right? Our alumni come by and they hang out and they scout and they're, what they're looking for is like, are you someone who is engaging and supporting your teammates or are you putting headphones on and doing your thing? I understand that there are a lot of engineers out there who put their headphones on and do their thing and that's cool, but that's just not who we are. We are very much community focused. As I mentioned, we are activists, right? Coding is not the message, it's the megaphone. We also like to say that we are activists dressed up as technologists, right? So if you'd care about the embetterment of your entire team, that's who we want. It becomes especially important later on, a few months down the road, when that individual is one of very few people of color at their company, right? That cohesion among our alumni community is very finely curated by us at the point of recruitment. Now, over the course of the program, once they are accepted, like what are they learning over those 14 weeks? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty rigorous. It's, uh, it's very rigorous. In fact, these coders graduate with more skill than, than I have. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, we focus a lot on JavaScript. Um, I should say we focus on object-oriented programming specifically through the lens of JavaScript, but with principles that are broad enough to be applicable to other languages and frameworks. Uh, we spend a lot of time with React, uh, with Node, um, a little bit with Postgres, MongoDB. Um, and by the time they graduate, everyone will have built at least one full-stack application, soup to nuts, above and beyond normal classwork. Um, we also have uh, what we call our Cliff Weeks, this is every three or so weeks, individuals have um, a pretty insane amount of work to get done by the end of the week. And if they don't accomplish it, they're cut from the program. Um, we do this not because we're horrible, sadistic people who like to watch people suffer. Uh, we do this because it's important to us to be able to 100% stand behind everyone who graduates from the program. When people, when employers come to us and they say, hey, listen, whisper in my ear, who's really the sort of the the person that I should hire and who, who should I avoid, uh, I need to be able to say with clear conscience, if they graduated from the program, you should hire them. And it all leads down to this demo day where the students are actually kind of pitching themselves to hopefully land employment. So what's, what's the demo day like? And, and how do the students prepare for that? Demo day is the best day. It's the greatest day. Everyone makes fun of me because I call out my Christmas. Uh, <laughs> and the, the deal with that is that I spend a lot of my time talking to prospective employers, telling them that our students can code and telling them that they're, that they're good at what they do. Um, and they kind of, to some degree, take my word for it a little bit, right? And at demo day, I could take two steps back and say, you don't need to believe me, look at the code. So for the first uh, few minutes, students pitch themselves to that room full of employers for about um, 60 seconds apiece. They tell their story, they tell their why, they let you in a little bit on who they are and why you should hire them. Um, and then in the back of the room, they open up their laptops and they showcase their work. So people can actually scrutinize the code. It ends up being like a reverse career fair with our students at the various stations and the employers going station to station looking at the code. Now, one of the reasons as to why I love Demo Day as I mentioned before, is because you can see the work. But also, I'm talking about humans, 
right? These are humans with human stories. And their reasons for being there and the stuff that they build are awesome. Um, I always talk about this young woman who was uh, displaced from Syria. And she created an application that is almost like a, like a refugee Craigslist. People can find each other. Um, we had one young man who uh, was, he struggled with mutism as a child. He couldn't communicate verbally. And uh, he was sort of tracked accordingly in school. Uh, and then he created an application that allows students to communicate non-verbally with their teachers. So they can hit a button or two and communicate how they are feeling to a teacher instantaneously. That's amazing. Yeah, we've had a, I mean, we, have a, we always have folks who are housing insecure or homeless. And we've seen a couple of applications built uh, to address housing insecurities or gentrification. Uh, so people come here with a mission, with a certain degree of grit and ambition. Uh, I, and uh, you can see that at Demo Day because it comes out both in the 60-second pitch and in the work that they choose to set their minds to. Now, how does it work for the companies that are attending? Like, like, how do they get involved and how do they make hires? Like, is there a process? Is there a fee? Like, how does all that work? You know, um, we do ask our companies for, uh, to support resilient coders, to make a suggested donation. And we do call it a suggested donation at the moment because we don't want to get in the way of a student's employment. Right. So if we, we have had, companies, particularly sort of smaller startups, say to us, you know, we'd love to hire from Resilient, but we just can't pay a fee. To which I say, then don't pay the fee because I'm the worst salesperson in the world. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't start this organization to make money, right? I started this organization to launch careers. Right. And so if they are mutually in conflict, let's launch the career. Now, so are there some, um, like, who are some of the employers that have hired some of the, the, the students? And are there any, like, you know, uh, sample success stories that you could share? Absolutely. Uh, we have had historically a lot of luck with the, the startup community. Um, so, like, startups that have hired out of Resilient have included uh, Gravity, uh, Bison, um, Wistia is awesome, Maverick, um, Privy, uh, Oh man, there's a whole bunch. I'm going to uh, lose a bunch of them. Um, our studio, uh, we're starting to work with some bigger companies as well. Uh, we have a great relationship going with Wayfair. Uh, Wayfair is obviously growing like mad. And so we are honored to be a part of that mad growth. Um, we are in fact doing some custom curriculum with Wayfair. Um, Wayfair is hiring enough people at a rip where it just really makes sense for us to sit down with that team and say, look, what are the skills that you need above and beyond the object-oriented programming that they learn during our core boot camp? Uh, and let's teach to that, right? Let's train our students to the point where they can just walk into, um, you know, Wayfair Labs, which is sort of their own onboarding program, um, in a way that is as seamless as possible. So that's what we're starting to look at more and more, understanding what are the specific needs of a company, how can we meet them, and how can we throw um, talent at them that is going to help them ship product. Now, obviously, it's um, diversity and inclusion is on the radar for the majority of companies, which is very important, and obviously, it's very uh, good for uh, the tech industry because it's, it's needed. So what advice do you give to people, whether it's, um, you know, founders, CEOs, uh, head of talent acquisition about, you know, taking the next level of building out a more diverse and inclusive workforce? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we are just, we're hitting that moment right now where the talk is turning into action. 
we have had a little bit historically a high proportion of talk to do ratio around diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, but more and more people are trying to figure out how to make it work. Um, so there are a few things that have not worked, uh, which I mentioned only because they set the stage for what does work. Um, Sometimes people uh, sort of silo, have historically siloed off the diversity and, and inclusion efforts to be independent of core leadership and core strategy, right? As long as you're sort of making it a separate thing and making someone without much internal political power in charge of it, it's not going to go anywhere. And it also sends a pretty clear message. If you say to your company, hey, so this, this individual who was an intern, you know, six months ago is going to be leading our DNI effort, um, it's a, it's a, you're sending a pretty clear message to your company. And these companies also afterwards find themselves scratching their heads being like, well, it didn't really work. I don't know how to do diversity. By the way, if I hear, I don't know how to do diversity one more time, I swear to God, it's, it's a, you know, you just set a, it's just, it's just like business. You determine your audience. Who are we talking about when we talk about diversity? Are we talking about people of color? Are we talking about white women? Those are two very different groups of people who need very different entry points into your company. Are we talking about veterans? Are we talking about neurodiversity? Um, those are all different groups. Uh, and, and, you know, creating a program that speaks to each of those groups is going to look different, right? So identify the target. Identify the objective. What would success look like to you a year from now? Develop a strategy execute on the strategy, measure it, and then iterate on it. So the same way that you would run your core business, you should do a diversity initiative. I used to work, as you know, I, you know, I worked at, a, uh, at Where, and we did uh, very, very targeted advertising, right? And so what I, what I say to companies is, like, we, li we live in a civilization where I, <laughs> I know exactly how to target a very specific person or group of people and sell stuff to them right? We know how to target and how to execute against the strategy. Let's apply that to finding individuals that we identify as quote unquote diverse and bring them into the company. And I will say, and, and, and supporting them while they're there. Yeah, it's, uh, but I, I do agree that uh, at least there is action now. Before there was always talk that, oh, we need more diversity and inclusion, but uh, there was never that follow-up action. And, you know, pretty much every company we're dealing with, they are talking about it and you do definitely feel momentum of action behind just the talk. Yeah, you know, I think that there's also, there is starting to become a shift in the way that we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion too. Uh, because we were for a while at a stage where people wanted diversity for the sake of diversity. Uh, and that's nonsense, right? And then for a while, people wanted the business case. And I, I can talk that talk. I've had to talk that talk. You know, I can sit here and tell you about, well, you know, this HBR study says that, you know, companies perform 35% better because they're ethnically diverse, blah, 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 blah. But if we have to distill the reason to hire equitably down to a business case, man, we are in trouble and we've got some other shit to explore. Yeah. Right mm -hmm. now. So what I like to position it as what is our vision for Boston? Right. Because if I were to set the stage for where we are today, uh, I was at the state of the city, uh, Mayor Walsh's state of the city uh, a couple months ago, back in January. And he threw out this staggering number. We have a 2.4% unemployment rate in the city. Lowest unemployment rate since that figure has been recorded. 
A couple of weeks later, the Boston Planning and Development Agency came out with um, a report that adds a little bit more, uh, a little bit more detail around that figure, and it breaks it down by neighborhood. Everyone should read this study. Well, anyone who sort of wonks out like I do on this stuff. <laughs> and you go down to the seaport, you've got a per capita income of $98,000, right? You go to Roxbury, you've got a per capita income of thirteen. Excuse me, $19,000, right? That's crazy. There's a 13% unemployment rate in Roxbury. Yeah. Now that's today. That's today, right? Now, what about tomorrow? We've already got self-driving cars on the road, right? What about all those individuals who drive, right? Number one job in America for people of color, for men of color, driving. Number one job for women of color in America, retail associate. Those jobs are going to disappear. Now, the answer that you get from the workforce development types is, well, jobs don't really disappear. Automation has been happening for centuries. They don't disappear, they change, they transform. And I'd say, yes, you are absolutely correct. And what has been done historically is that efforts have been put in place to retrain the workforce so that they are ready to make that jump with industry. 1865, Massachusetts saw the Industrial Revolution looming over the horizon, and they said, you know what we should do? Let's literally set up an institute of technology. Let's set up the Massachusetts Institute of Technology to make sure that we can be ahead of the curve and we can lead the Industrial Revolution here uh, in Massachusetts. I would love for there to be any such effort right now for folks to say, you know what, how about these folks who are relying on jobs that are about to disappear? How about we give them the skills necessary to survive, right? And so the reason for the existence of resilient coders is, is not because we think it's cute to get people coding. We are the reincarnation of that impetus to retrain Massachusetts for the jobs of tomorrow. Because that is not being done elsewhere, we must pull together resources to take folks who are at risk of losing their jobs, give them the skills necessary to be members of Boston's high growth um, uh, tech industry, and let's give them those jobs. So when I tell companies, let's hire for diversity, really what I'm saying is, what is your vision for our civilization? And if it's equitable, let's make it equitable. Well, that's a fascinating um, background of MIT. I, I never knew that. Um, and then obviously it progressed to the point where it's one of the you know, leading institutions in the whole entire world. How, so how do you, um, how is resilient coders, like how, how is it funded? Like there is, you know, a, a suggested fee if somebody makes a hire, but are there other ways that you fund your operation? And then how do you get it to that next level of doing it even at a larger scale? Absolutely. Uh, so first and foremost, we, we consider ourselves a movement and we're, we're lucky enough to have a lot of allies. Um, so there have been um, companies, uh, foundations who get behind resilient coders. So we're lucky enough to have the support of organizations like the Boston Foundation, um, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, you know, Bank of America, uh, Devonshire Foundation, Carbonite, the company, uh, Google and Microsoft. We have a whole uh, bunch of wonderful companies. Uh, and I apologize to all those that I've, that I've left out. Um, but we have a, a litany of companies, uh, organizations, and people uh, who have decided to join this movement and support resilient coders. Um, 
we also are inviting companies uh, like Wayfair uh, who want custom training uh, to help support some of that custom training. And so there's a bit of a revenue generating enterprise there as well. Um, and uh, those are the, the predominant ways uh, in which Resilient Coders remains funded. Uh, we do not charge our students at all. Um, in fact, we pay them to be there. Um, we, in order to be equitable, we, we don't want to assume that anyone has the privilege of taking 14 weeks out of the workforce. Uh, and so we give them a stipend so that they can, uh, that they can survive. Now, like, what, what's your ultimate goal? If it's to retrain, you know, this workforce in Massachusetts, you know, how are you able to, you know, train more people at a faster clip? You know, is it more, you know, getting more sponsors or getting, uh, you know, Mayor Walsh to sign up and make this a key uh, initiative for the city of Boston? Or how do you how do you fund it to the next level? You know, we have kind of an interesting um, goal. Uh, my goal for resilient coders is for resilient coders to become obsolete. Ten years from now, I want to be able. I want people to be having a conversation and be like, "Why? Why would there ever be an organization that focuses on low-income people of color and trains them for software engineering skills when they can just do?" Uh, because college has become freely accessible to everyone, and they're paid to attend college, right? Or because uh, companies have uh, much broader on-ramps into the company that trains them on the job. Like there, are, there are any number of initiatives that could lead to our own obsolescence that I am actively championing for, you know, uh, we can only do so much within resilient coders. Uh, we are a very small slice of the pie. Uh, we do our thing. We do it very well, but we do our small thing and it's incumbent on me and on our leadership to take uh, a step beyond the organization, look around us, develop real meaningful partnerships with, with organizations that are doing this work as well. Uh, because the problem that we are tackling is much bigger than any of us. Well, kudos to you for taking initiative and, and doing what you're doing, because obviously it's incredibly meaningful and it is uh, such an important part of, uh, you know, progressing not only just the you know, technology industry, but, you know, you know, the greater good as a whole. Thank you. That's very kind of you to say. So outside of uh, all the great work you're doing with resilient coders, what, if you do have time outside of uh, the you know, day-to-day responsibilities, what do you like to do? You're still... You know, you said you're still an artist. Are there, what else do you like to do? Yeah, I like to. So I'm a big history nerd. I like to read about history, uh, especially this month. Um, is uh, this month marks 500 years since Cortez is, is landing in Veracruz? Um, so uh, the city of Veracruz, the settled the Spanish settlement, was established in April 22nd, 1519. Um, so, for example, this year I've spent or this month so far, I've been just uh, consuming uh, history about the 500 years of systemic exploitation of Latin America. Um, I'm, an, I'm an artist. I love, I still make art. Uh, and some of it is sort of up there floating around the internet. Um, is it like illustrations or like what's, you said you want to be a cartoonist, so. Yeah, once upon a time, I wanted to be a comic book artist. And so all of my artwork still remains largely like comic book uh, inspired. Mm. Um, and uh what else? Do a lot of running. <laughs> those are the things that keep me level, man. I keep the head on straight. That's good. You got to have all those side interests to keep things going. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, David, thank you again for taking the time. Like I said, I was excited to talk to you uh, about all the meaningful work that you're doing and, you know, kudos to you and resilient coders and, uh, you know, let us know what we can do to continue to support your efforts. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much.
Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.